This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And what can I tell you? Kevin Landis has been investing in technology companies, I don't know, 30 years, 25, 30 years, both public and private. He runs firsthand funds. They have a number of different mutual funds that specialize in technology companies, including one that is one of the rare publicly traded uh, venture capital funds. Imagine an individual VC that itself is, is publicly traded. Kevin not only survived the dot-com implosion, but thrived. The funds have put up really outstanding numbers uh, over the past fill-in-the-blank 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, he really is super knowledgeable about startups and technology companies, uh, both both new and old. And one of the things that makes them so interesting is they're located right out there in the heart of Silicon Valley. It's, it's hard to imagine that before first-hand funds opened up in 94, there were no mutual funds located right there in the midst of uh, tech land. Really quite interesting. He grew up out there. He went to Berkeley. That's his uh, backyard. Really a fascinating guy and a fascinating conversation about all things technology-related. I think you'll find this to be an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. So with no further ado, my interview of Firsthand Funds, Kevin Landis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Kevin Landis. He is the CIO of Firsthand Capital Management and president and chairman of Firsthand Funds. Founded in 1994 with $500 million in assets, under management, Kevin has specialized in technology. The First Hand Technology Opportunities Fund has been up 102% over the past 12 months. Kevin Landis, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much for having me. So you spent your life in Silicon Valley and are known as one of the longest tenured technology investors. How did you find your way into tech investing? Well, there's a there's a long, boring uh, story of how I, you know, touched every stone along the path, or there's more of the, the moment in time parable answer, and I'll give you the moment in time answer. And that is when I was in the fifth grade, I told my parents that I wanted to be a historian when I grew up. Now, my parents were both children of the Great Depression, and so they were immediately horrified that I was... Um, uh, unwittingly, I was pointing to a profession that wouldn't uh, make me very financially successful or secure. And they really tried hard to talk me out of it. And finally, one of them said, you know, Kevin, if you can figure out the history that hasn't happened yet, then you're going to be all right, son. And the other quickly agreed. And I thought about that on and off ever since, that if you can figure out the history that hasn't happened, that's a really good thing. And I think that's that's a pretty good encapsulation of, of what I do. That's the definition of investing, history that has yet to happen. Yep. So I'm kind of intrigued by your background. You have a BS degree. It looks like this is a double degree in electrical engineering and computer science from UC Berkeley before you got your MBA. The, the first question is, why not go directly to a tech startup? Was there any ever any lure to that? There was. And uh, I considered that, but this is one of those moments where fate sort of intervened. And my dad's business was as a manufacturer's rep in Silicon Valley, meaning he was the customer-facing office. He and his partner were the customer-facing office for tech companies based outside of Silicon Valley, dealing with Silicon Valley customers. And his partner had a heart attack and had to go in for coronary bypass surgery during my senior year in college. And my dad needed him, needed me to come join the business because he would have looked like a one-man band otherwise. So uh, I spent the first four years of my professional career, instead of learning more things about engineering, learning a lot about business and human nature and how to deal with oh. people. So, Kevin, your first experience in the field was not anything that encouraged you to want to become a, uh, an insider at some tech startup. Well, that's right. Uh, uh, but it, I mean, it, it taught me a great deal about 
human nature and about business and business strategy and my you know that it led to the second job uh, that I got out of, after business school at, as an analyst at a high technology market research firm, which also began teaching me a lot of the things that that I had thought that I'd learned in school but actually weren't true. <laughs> Give us an example of things you learned in school that turned out to be not true. Well, one of the one of the explanations for um, efficient markets is that there's a lot of just incredibly brilliant, gifted people doing perfect research and that everything that can be known about a company is already in the stock price. But when you're uh, an analyst at, uh, again, at a high-tech market research firm and somebody from a a big-name financial firm calls and starts asking you a bunch of very naive questions, it doesn't take you long to realize that the emperor has no clothes and that maybe you need to modify your thought to realize that the world is not this perfectly ordered place where everything's all worked out. There's actually a lot of confusion out there, uh, and that information is not really evenly distributed. And uh, all of the forces that finance professors will teach you about why markets tend towards efficiency, they're all valid arguments. But things are usually changing fast enough, and people are imperfect enough, that markets don't really always have it, have it just right. Right. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I find markets are kind of, sort of, eventually efficient, but that still leaves a lot of wriggle room and, and hence the opportunity for some investors to outperform. Right. Right. So you're an analyst for a number of years. What else did you do before launching First Hand Funds in 1994? So after being, you know, starting out as an applications engineer, customer facing with my dad's firm, and then being a junior analyst at a market research firm. Then I, I spent a couple of years as a product manager at a little chip company in Silicon Valley. And again, it was, it was a great just example for myself uh, to realize some of the nitty-gritty stuff that I thought I understood as an analyst. But even though I was close to the industry, I wasn't in the industry. And that, I, again, I just kept learning more stuff that I thought I knew that I hadn't known. And uh, huh. uh, and that was where, uh, frankly, though, I I kind of realized one day that I was making more money trading stocks than I was on my day job, and that maybe that was the wrong day job to have. Uh, and maybe my true calling was just to be the tech investor. So you launched First Hand Funds in 94. What was the process like of getting that off the ground? Well, that was really daunting because, you know, a lot of times when you're, particularly when you're, you're young starting out, uh, you have this feeling like, you know, the existing businesses are some sort of a club and you need to get an invite uh, to get in or somebody needs to give you a chance. And you have to make that leap that says you kind of have to make your own luck and no one's going to hand it to you. And so my partner and I uh, basically figured out how to form a mutual fund. Uh, at that time, I couldn't believe there was no high-tech mutual fund based in Silicon Valley. And I couldn't believe that I, that I couldn't find any examples of tech funds that were run by engineers. And it seemed like, oh, my gosh, this is if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it for a really long time. So we need to figure out how to do this. And then we basically just we pulled a couple of million dollars out of our address books uh, and and got in touch with people that we had gotten to know who believed in us and said, here's this vehicle we're investing in. And let's uh, let's see if we can make you some money. And uh, that was that was basically our little startup state there. I think the joke was that um, our management fee was enough that uh, we could each buy a sandwich each day, and that was it. <laughs> so what are the advantages of running a tech mutual fund from right in the heart of Silicon Valley? You know, you can't bump into people and chit-chat without picking up uh, industry scuttlebutt. Uh, I mean, I, I the, the, the bet, I had an example just the other day. We, my wife and I, were working with this uh, a dog rescue organization, and and we took a, a rescue dog for a weekend while the fosters were out of town. And you know, the guy came back to pick up the dog, and we were chit chatting. And all of a sudden, before you know it, we're talking about what's going on at VMware, and what's the matter with this company and that company. What do you think about the CEO leaving there to go to Intel? And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a research meeting, 
and I'm just <laughs> handing this guy his dog. So, uh, and you know, same thing. You bump into somebody uh, you know you haven't seen in a few months at the grocery store. You you're always swimming in it. And uh, so when people ask like, what's your you know what's your process for going out and 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 uh, you know getting ideas and getting scuttlebutt? I, I, that's like saying, what's your process for getting wet when it's raining? Just go outside. Dog sitting and shopping. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's pretty funny. You're also the CEO of the First Hand Technology Value Funds, which is really interesting. It's a publicly traded venture capital fund, obviously focusing on emerging technologies. You were pre-IPO investors in Facebook, Twitter, SolarCity, Yelp, Roku, leading to the obvious question, why a publicly traded venture capital firm? Well, that, so that was a great that was a great moment in, uh, uh, in in time here. I mean, you're probably well acquainted with how easy it was for companies to go public in the late 1990s, and sure. then the and then the just the dramatic uh, backlash against that. The pendulum swung really hard the other direction, and it wasn't just people being skeptical of of startups uh, and and of IPOs, but it was also Sarbanes Oxley and a bunch of other really draconian uh, regulations uh, that just made it really, really difficult. The the IPO went from being uh, sort of this rite of passage that people were striving for to being this awful ordeal that people were avoiding at all costs. And that we just realized as we got into, you know, uh, you know, 07, 08, 09, that companies, by the time they went public, uh, they were so well known and so expensive that a lot of the, those early returns had already been, and you just couldn't get them in the public market. So, you know, I had by this time already made a career out of mocking and ridiculing uh, <laughs> companies that failed to adapt. Um, and you know, when we started out in the '90s, I made fun of Jack and Data General. You know, and then uh, you know, by 2010, we were all making fun of Yahoo and uh, and and plenty of others. Believe me. Uh, and I kind of looked at that and I said, well, I'm running a, what's, uh, a mutual fund, but in the industry is referred to as a 40 act fund, right? Because that's the, inve- it's the investment company act of 1940. And so one day I just sort of looked in the mirror and I said, right, I'm here in Silicon Valley making fun of people who failed to evolve and I'm running a 1940 act <laughs> fund. Uh, and, and I thought about that a little bit and said, you know, I think we need to adapt. <laughs> so, um, we realized that there was an obscure branch of the 40 Act that talked about business development companies, BDCs. And that had kind of evolved into this odd kind of a credit-granting model. But we went back to the original version of that, which is, no, it's a business development company. We can make this a venture capital portfolio. And that was right around the time that companies like uh, Shares Post and Second Market were right. making it easier to get shares in, in startup companies. So that was, uh, um, that just sort of fell into place. And, and we looked around and said, okay, we're just going to buy, uh, we're going to look at, we're not changing how we look at companies. We're still looking for the same things, right place, right time, market that we like, just looks like the winner. And uh, that allowed us to really kind of go back to doing what we'd always done. I always told people, you know, you don't need to pay me to go buy Microsoft for you. You know, you, you've kind of already discovered that one. Uh, and just today, you know, nobody needs to pay me to go buy Apple. Uh, uh, you can buy it on your own. So, but what you're looking for are those companies you haven't heard of yet. And uh, so that's why we made that shift. So why do that in a vehicle that's publicly traded instead of just setting up a separate venture capital fund that doesn't have to go through all of the usual public listing things? Well, I think that we've always had a bit of a egalitarian bent here where it should be available for everybody, and it shouldn't just be this, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say elitist, but it shouldn't just be an investment vehicle that's only available for the few. It should be available for everybody. And so I, I like the idea of publicly listed vehicles. I mean, that's kind of the reason that we didn't start out with a hedge fund to begin with. We wanted the doors open to everybody. And, of course, you know, we're unconventional enough that um, I don't think we do very well on the, on the standard public roadshow that you'd have to go through 
to do institutional fundraising. So we're not really uh, adept at, at, at that game. So last question on the public-private issue. What do you think of the line being blurred between these pre-public companies and publicly traded companies and all of the SPACs that have come out as a sort of backdoor way to IPO companies that don't go through that roadshow you were describing? Yeah. I, I think it's, a, first of all, I think it's a good thing that uh, people get in the habit of looking at companies through the, the same lens. You know, a late-stage public company, you ought to look at it the same way you look at a public company. Uh, and and um, I, I think that would, uh, that, that level of scrutiny, that's a good thing. Uh, but I'm also, yeah, I'm a really big fan of competition. I think it really brings out the best in us. So I view direct listings and facts as basically other ideas coming in uh, and competing with the uh, uh, sort of this historical model of IPOs, the standard uh, S1. And, you know, I, I, I would, I don't know if I would say the, the old style S1 process is broken, but it's certainly bent out of shape and, and doesn't work that well because it is, it is just, it is really onerous, uh, and it is really tough on the company. Uh, so it, it, you really need to be um, big with a lot of resources before you do it. And um, that's unfair to a lot of people. Uh, it, you should be able to go public a little bit earlier, a little bit sooner. And frankly, you know, today there's that SPAC process allows you to talk a lot more about where you're going instead of just being uh, uh, restricted and only being able to stay where you've been. And where you're going is kind of what matters for stocks. Huh. That's interesting. I know quite a few other people out in your part of the woods, venture capitalists like Bill Gurley, have been big champions of the direct listing exactly because the IPO process has become increasingly difficult over the past I don't know, 20, 30 years? Is, that, is most of this a post-dot-com implosion effect? Yes. Was it easier in the 90s? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Going public, going public in 2000 was still really, really easy. But, you know, uh, if you look at the scandals, if you look at all, all of the busted IPOs, the whole pets.com generation, uh, and right. then you combine that with some of the corporate scandals, i.e. I. WorldCom, Tyco, Enron. Those are kind of my big three. Um, you could say fraud. Kind of got, we, we're not afraid of the word fraud here. Right. Those, the, the reaction to those kind of got conflated. Uh, so corporate fraud and gotcha. busted IPOs kind of got conflated. And, we, and everyone said, despite the fact that those management teams all went to jail under existing law uh, and justice right. was served, people still said there ought to be a law. And so they made Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, and I think that's the equivalent of, you know, going home and kicking the dog because your because uh, your boss is mean to you. Um, so the dog they kicked there was, you know, the next twenty years of tech companies wanting to go public. Um, the, the other thing I'll, I'll say there is that you know, the direct listing and and the SPAC merger are actually kind of converging on a on a similar uh, uh, path. Today, uh, there's usually a big uh, pipe of public investment and a private, or private investment and public right. equity, and that pipe investment uh, is highly supportive of SPAC transactions, and it's almost becoming a standard part of it, like a required part of it. That's kind of like building your book on the IPO, figuring out who's going to own that stock afterwards, and it has a lot of the uh, uh, lower costs associated with a uh, direct listing. So people are talking about the blended cost with your pipe plus SPAC transaction. So the market's uh, trying uh, to find the right uh, the right mix of that. Makes a lot of sense. In tech stocks right through the 90s, really a unique period in, in history. I always kind of chuckle when I see some of the youngins compare the current market to the 1999 era or the dot-com implosion although I'm chuckling a little less these days than I was a year or two ago. What's your take on this comparison? How do the 2020s match up against the late 90s? Well, first, let's talk about how they're the same. You know, I, I think the feeling that one gets here uh, is we're reminded that a little optimism 
is a great thing. Uh, and, and too much optimism can, you can drive right off the road and that can be a really bad thing. So, uh, it's, it's good to have people looking for, looking towards the future, looking to see, well, what could we do? What could this company do? Um, what, how do we change things for the better? Uh, and it should be about that. I think somewhere along the line, though, there's a segment that simply is saying, uh, how do we just get rich? And uh, there's nothing wrong with the profit motive. It's great. I'm a capitalist. But, um, you know, it should be, what, how, are you, how are you making the world better and what are you, what are you really uh, driving towards? I'm actually kind of encouraged that a lot of the sort of the, the striving and, and the uh, looking forward and what can we do has to do with solving really big problems. How do we go to space again? How do we, uh, you know... Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. That's great, good for him. But, you know, how do we send lots of other people there? How do we bring people back? And, uh, uh, and how do we solve climate change? There's, there's some really big things. There, we're, there's an old quote a few years ago. Somebody said we were promised flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. Uh, <laughs> to me, that was, a, that, was, that was this great encapsulation, again, of, of just how you can kind of get off track if you're, when you've got a bunch of smart people working on something. You know, uh, it's sort of if you're working on on uh, making crops grow on some stupid online game, uh, that has limited uh, value. On the other hand, if you're actually working on making crops grow, maybe that's better. So I, I, I like that, uh, and I like that people are are looking at companies and not saying, "Well, what did you do over the last five years?" But what are you going to do in the next five years? That's the right way to look at it. It's the better way to look at it. Um, I, I just I guess I would caution folks. A lot of these companies aren't going to make it. A lot of these companies are going to fall short of their lofty goals. That's probably okay. I mean, it's, it's okay that Pets.com blew up because now you've got Amazon. So for better or for worse, you've got Amazon. Somebody made it. Somebody made it work. Uh, and somebody was actually right in all of the hype that they were uh, generating. And I think it'll be this way again. Uh, and in the meantime, markets will do their damnedest to... Uh, give us lots of opportunities to hurt ourselves financially. So two thoughts about that. One is, yeah, Pets.com might have been a disaster, but today we have Chewy, which is doing really well. I'm intrigued by the concept of genomic agriculture as the better bet than Farmville. Discuss some of the things you see that are really more along the flying cars progression than the 140 or 280 character progression yeah. right right in other words the the sort of the john f kennedy call to action moment yes um it's it focus on duty instead of call of duty so <laughs> yeah I, I i guess um uh, you know um electrification of of transport is a big deal yes you're still using power but i think that the the part that um people are kind of learning from direct experience on their on their personal vehicles is that the great thing about having an electric drivetrain is that you can harvest all the energy uh, that's built up in your vehicle's speed. And I always, you know, uh, tell people, go stand out in front of your house on, uh, on trash day and watch this big, heavy truck going from zero to 10 miles an hour and back down to zero all the way up and down your block. And think about all that wasted energy. And if, if that truck had an electric drivetrain, uh, they wouldn't have to hit the brakes. They, they, they just ease off the accelerator pedal, and you would regenerate and store all that energy each time they, they come to a stop. Uh, so, in other words, one of the biggest untapped sources of energy out there is the momentum uh, in these vehicles. And uh, so the, the minute you electrify, you, you start to harvest that. Basic ideas like that are, are really a big thing. And um, so I, I think, yes. Taking a lot of the waste out of the system and a lot of the wasted energy, that's going to get us a long ways towards climate change. And there are going to be a lot of other uh, great examples. I think we go, we go to space again, uh, we're going to find better ways uh, and better materials for insulation. You know, heat shields are serious business in, uh, uh, in, in space. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think 10 years from now we'll have much better insulators. That means we're going to be much more energy efficient. And, again, that's going to help with uh, uh, with global warming. So 
So there, there's a lot that we can do. We have really, really some daunting challenges, but we can get to work on them. Let me jump in here and ask you this question, because I started out trying to do a 20, 20s comparison to the 1990s, and what I'm reading between the lines is the technology that you're looking at today seems to be much bigger, broader impact, more significant, both politically, socially, and economically, than some of the, let's call them more frivolous dot-com technologies that were investor darlings in the 90s? Is that a fair compare and contrast? I, I think so. You know, um, the if you look back at the 1990s, one of my favorite examples is, uh, you know, of sort of creative destruction was we disintermediated <laughs> travel agents. Sure. You know, there were a lot of people who worked in the, in the, as travel agents. There are still a few, but they're really kind of high-end concierge folks. Everybody right. can go online and book their own travel, right? Uh, and in fact, you know, when I fly on Southwest Airlines, I, I disintermediate Travelocity and just go straight to, straight to the Southwest site. So um, that's a great efficiency. But, yeah, and it's not just the, the late 1990s with everyone wanted a website. Having a website for certain things, that was really, really good. But even since then, you know, uh, look at what the tech industry did with transportation, uh, the, the ride-hailing services, Lyft and Uber, um, fixed a really, really daunting problem, which was that there's nothing wrong with the cab, it's just that it's not here. Uh, the, the cab dispatch function just never never evolved to where it ought to be. So now that we have GPS in our phones, uh, we, can, we, can, we can hail a cab no matter where we are. That, that's great. It solves some problems. But, you know, I, I think a lot of us are just sort of uncomfortable with the idea that a lot of this amazing technology is really useful in keeping current on our Instagram feed and posting selfies all over the place. That's not a good look. I mean, even if you look good on your Instagram, that's not a good look, just being all about that. Makes a lot of sense. So let me finish by circling back. Do you think the current environment is a late 90s bubble-like market and if not, do you see pockets of bubbles in any areas in particular? You know, somebody asked me the other day about, do you see bubbles? And I, I, I well, said, of course I do. And I, I, I realized I, there's, there's the Haley Joe Osment character in the movie The Sixth Sense where he finally confesses right. to, uh, he, he says, I see dead people, right? And he's, he's very scared as he says it. I, I kind of feel like I see bubbles uh, everywhere I look. And... <laughs> That that's what I'm realizing is that's just a normal, natural part of the environment. There are bubbles all the time, everywhere, and um, you're just uh, you're you're not noticing them because when they pop, there each one isn't necessarily big enough to take down the whole system. Um, but you know, most companies fail. Most companies don't get there. Uh, the actual survival rate is a lot lower uh, than than you think it is uh, when you do the real accounting of it. And working with startups teaches you that pretty quickly. That's okay. Lots of stocks are overpriced. That's okay. Uh, because the benefit to getting a few companies to be really successful and solving it, getting it right, um, those benefits are worth it. Quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about, we'll start with the technology funds doubling your benchmark is quite an achievement. But what I'm more fascinated by is you're up that much without owning Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, or Facebook. How do you do, how do you accomplish that? I thought you had to be in the giant big cap tech stocks to put up triple digit returns like that. Well, you know, it, it, it turns out that um, a $20 billion market cap can go to $40 billion just as easily as a $1 trillion market cap can go to $2 trillion. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, even a little bit easier. Um, you know, it, it, it is true that there are moments, and, I, you know, we saw these again, you know, in, in the 90s and at other times, when people just want to pile into tech and they pile into the names that they already know. And because they get comfort in those names, they, 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 they feel like they understand them because they're familiar with them. Um, turns out those aren't actually the same thing, but okay, fine. 
there are moments when, when, when people do that. But uh, taking a longer view, uh, there is a better moment when people are craving growth. And they're seeing that to go get a company that has robust growth for years to come, um, you can't take the people who are already worth a trillion dollars or more and populate your portfolio just with those names. Um, you need to find companies that, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're only, only 20 billion in market cap, but they're on their way to a hundred billion. That's a better rate of return, but you've got to be comfortable that you've done your homework and it's not a household name. And people might look at you funny if you tell them that you own this crazy stock named Chegg or Roku. Uh, and that's okay. What about Tesla? I know you owned it briefly, but it really was never a significant part of this portfolio. Why not own a Tesla? Is it, you mentioned earlier, hey, you don't need me to tell you to go buy Microsoft. Is Tesla right. in the same category? <laughs> you know, Tesla's a great example of when you're right, even if, forget why you're right. If, if a stock is working, um, Maybe the best thing for you to do is just turn off your computer and go to the beach uh, and let it keep working for you. Uh, and and so, you know, shame on me for thinking that I was, you know, overly clever when the market the market was really, really frothy. And so I thought I'd get cute. And on a really, really down day, I would uh, 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 buy some beaten up Tesla shares and then write some covered calls against it. And the worst I could do was, you know, I'd make X percent. And, and, of course, then it rallied right past that, and I got taken out of the stock. Um, and, and that was just me trying to prove to myself once again that I'm not a very good trader uh, and I should stick with investing. Um, you know, when you see a company like this that becomes just absolutely unsupportable on the valuation side, that the numbers just don't seem to work, um, you can... You know, you can pull your hair out, uh, you can shake your head, or you can just say, all right, well, that's the power of optimism. That's the power of uh, when people really believe in something, they will really support the hell out of it. And um, find other examples of that uh, that you could put in your portfolio that haven't been discovered yet and that haven't gotten uh, all, all of that psychology behind them just yet. Huh. I love this quote of yours. Quote, I like to remind people that the time to invest in Netflix was when you never heard of Netflix. Explain the thinking behind that. Well, I, you know, the, the argument is that uh, pick any great um, investment in technology, and what you're going to see is that those stocks performed best when people were just figuring it out and adding it to their portfolio. There's a, there was a moment where somebody would say, you know, ABC Corporation, never heard of them. And then, oh, ABC, yeah, I think I figured them out. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in on that idea. I like that. And I just, if I look back over the years, some of our best years performance-wise were when other people were falling in, love with the, falling in love with the stocks that we already own. But we made those investments in years where we didn't necessarily perform that well. So, you know, you, you, you make your best investments you know, in year in year two, and maybe you get all the return out of it in year four when people catch up to your way of thinking and start to agree with you. Quite interesting. You know, you launched the tech fund ninety nine some sometime late in that cycle, and the returns, despite that timing, they've been top decile for over ten years, twenty two percent a year, or for fifteen years, nineteen percent a year, and uh, I'm looking at your five year return is forty percent a year. What are you doing that is garnering these sorts of returns? Is it simply finding these currently unloved but future-loved tech companies? Is that the secret sauce? The shortest answer that I can give you to that question is, what are we doing being right? Um, and that's going to happen a fair amount of time, a fair amount of the time anyhow. Um, you know, I go back to my early days as an analyst at a market research firm. And um, when, when people said, well, how big is this market going to be? And how do you just determine how big this market's going to be? Nobody knows. Nobody really knows how big upside is. And the, the markets that you can understand really, really well uh, are the already established ones. Do you want to know how big is the market for automobile tires? 
there's somebody who's got all that data. Uh, you want to know how big is the market for dental floss and toothpaste? Somebody's got all that data. And you know what? That's not where you want to invest. It's really boring. Uh, if you want to know uh, the market for uh, a new generation of small satellites, nobody really knows. Uh, and that's what makes it so interesting. And so having worked on the job many, many years ago as a young kid and realizing that I was supposed to come up with a number, uh, I, I kind of understand now that uh, it, it's, it's not all about buttoning up your spreadsheet. Sometimes it's about leaning back in your chair and staring up the ceiling and asking yourself, just how big could this market become? How big is this opportunity? And um, that's, that's the key thing there. Where When you see a company that's in the right place at the right time, they're on the right track, then the question is just how much bigger could this market become? How much how high is up? And um, if you've got a good feel for answering that question, um, then you're going to be in some really promising stocks. And a few of them are going to work well for you. And that's, uh, that's what's going to make that difference. So, so last of these questions, you're a board member at several Silicon Valley startups. I have to think that helps you keep a, a close eye on trends that are developing in the private sector, does this translate directly to ownership in the public sector? Yes, absolutely. Because in the commercial world, uh, it's not that you know public companies only transact with public companies and private companies only transact with private companies, right? It's all mixed together. And um, one of the things, of course, that being on a, on a startup board teaches you is that, well, it gives you sort of a peek behind the curtain and you see how much chaos... <laughs> is actually present at most companies and how, you know, they're, how many fires they have to put out every week uh, while still focusing on the big picture. Um, and so you'll, you'll, you know, you'll learn a few, a few things that are really important. Uh, and, uh, and then along the way, yes, you will get valuable scuttlebutt. Um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite is, is um, I, one of my favorite observations is you ask people their opinions on things you'll get much more valuable information than if you just ask them for a data point. You know, everyone thinks that insider insight is all about who's going to make their quarter, who's going to miss their quarter. I really couldn't care less. Uh, I, I, that's, that's, that's the wrong game to play and you get in trouble for playing that game anyway. What you really should be doing when you're talking to somebody is ask yourself, this person's an expert at something. They know a lot of things that I don't know. Um, uh, what can I learn from this person? And usually it's not about them divulging some facts and figures. It's about them sincerely, honestly sharing their opinions. Those guys over there are a bunch of bozos. These guys over here are the right guys. By the way, the real talent is leaving company X and going to company Y. That's the kind of stuff I, I like to get. And um, so, yes, uh, working closely with startup companies gets you that. Huh. Quite fascinating. Let's talk specifics about some of your favorite investments today. What sectors and types of businesses have you most excited? Well, you know, there, there's always a collection of revolutions that are sort of underway within tech. And, you know, you hear about what's getting disrupted today and, and what's in, in mid-disruption and what's in early disruption. Um, so despite the fact that uh, Netflix uh, has been at it now for many, many years, um, we're still kind of in maybe the middle innings of, of streaming and the fact that cable companies are still in business <laughs> and still pushing the old business model is evidence that there's more to come. You know, the, uh, the old saying is history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Uh, what I would say is that today, uh, Roku rhymes with Netflix. Roku was that company that when I talked about it three or four years ago, I got a blank stare and today more and more people recognize the name and kind of understand what they do. And they fit that pattern of the company that fights with no one and wants to be everybody's partner. Uh, and it gets themselves in the middle of that trend and kind of finds their, their niche within that ecosystem. And uh, so I, I'm excited about the, the move to sort of the on-demand streaming and I'm excited about uh, Roku's position on what's still a really, really big wave. So that's one example. Another great example, I think, is when we look at EVs, 
electric vehicles, one of the things that you have to dig a little bit to get this appreciation is the voltage and the current requirements for electric vehicles are are different, and that requires uh, different different materials technology. And so, a lot of the more efficient uh, uh, electronics are not built on silicon, but they're built on silicon carbide. And it just happens that there's this company that's been struggling since, I kid you not, the late 1980s. Uh, it's called Cree, and based in North Carolina. And they have been struggling their way down this really difficult learning curve of how do you work with this exotic material. And they have finally found themselves in the exact right place at the exact right time uh, because power electronics made with silicon carbide perform much better and give you better electric vehicles. So you don't need to decide if you want to buy Tesla or you want to buy Lucid Motors or you want to buy Neo. You want to get exposure to this trend. Uh, you can buy Cree, and we have, and uh, that's one of those uh, stocks that's performed really well but still has a fairly modest market cap and still has plenty of headroom. And we're really excited about that. I recall Cree is one of the big innovators in LED lights, I don't know, 20 years ago? Is this the same company yeah. that came up with the yes. LED the company, on a chip or, or something like that? Absolutely right. So this falls into the category of a solution in search of a problem. What Cree developed was the ability to work with silicon carbide. And they struggled for years to try to figure out what's the end market where silicon carbide really really pays. And they thought it was LEDs for a while. But then uh, what they found was that you didn't have to make the perfect LED using silicon carbide. Uh, you could make um, a cheaper LED using other technologies and other materials. And you could do it in China. And so never mind all that. And that was a really daunting challenge for them to get through that. But they did. Hmm. Quite interesting. So are all these changes that are coming slow, iterative changes, or are some of these more revolutionary than evolution? I think that it's somebody once called a, a successful startup company uh, an overnight success, ten years in the making. Right, uh, right. This, this, this often, and if you think about how long we had cell phones before one day you looked around and noticed that everybody had a cell phone. Um, you know, for me that was. Uh, gosh, you know, in the early 1980s when I was a college student, nobody had a cell phone. By the end of the 80s, anybody in sales had a cell phone, but that was about it. Um, and by the end of the 90s, it seemed like everybody had a cell phone, but all they were doing on their cell phones was talking. So you can see that the big, the big important changes, they take years to unfold, but when you look back at it, or you can't believe just, just how different things were, you know, uh, from one decade to the next. So obviously EVs are a long-standing trend that has nothing to do with the pandemic, but you've mentioned some things that seem to be a little pandemic-related, obviously streaming being one of them. What about things like distance learning and remote work? Are these pandemic trends or, or do they have legs? Are they going to continue once things start getting back to normal? I think those, those examples are both Trends that were, were happening already, um, but the pandemic accelerated them. One of the things that's happened here is that our daily lives have been so disrupted that almost anything is on the table. We're willing to rethink things, and we're willing to go try new things. And so that's um, overcoming the inertia. I mean, inertia is really, that's really tough. You've got something that's not broke. Why fix it? Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's why you pay your cable bill every month and figure next month I'll, I'll, I'll work the other thing out. Um, and you know, that's really true with education. Um, unfortunately the state of education is such that you've got people who have through with no fault of their own are, are great advocates of supporting education and find themselves being defenders of the status quo. And so uh, I, I guess one of the, one great commentary I heard about a company one time is they said, yeah, the guy said, this was a great company. They just forgot to evolve. Um, I would look at our educational system and say they kind of look like they forgot to evolve. And this 
pandemic now is maybe maybe going to give them the, the necessary kick in the pants to hurry up and evolve and, and figure out uh, how to make it better. I mean, my old alma mater, UC Berkeley, they've got students living on campus or living off campus close by, but doing distance learning from their apartment um, rather than moving back to their parents' house. But that's a little odd. It's clearly a workaround. Uh, and I, I, I think that's causing a lot of people to ask some, some very good questions and figure out what's the better way to do this and how do we, are, we, are we just getting stuck in our old ways of doing things or, or not? Huh. I think with college, there's the whole social, physical interaction aspect of it that gets a little lost um, with distance learning, but there are obviously room for both, right? They're not mutually exclusive. Oh, absolutely right. You could argue that the university experience a lot of it is about learning in the classroom, but a lot of it is about getting on with life and, you know, leaving the nest. You can also argue that for elementary school, uh, a lot of it is about learning, but a lot of it is simply daycare so parents can go to work. Um, you could argue that in a, a lot of um, zip codes that it's actually about uh, making sure kids are not food insecure. And, and it's actually a great way to make sure that you're, uh, you're, you're investing in more ways than one in the next generation. So one of the things that's happening is, is people are stepping back and looking at, at the educational system and saying, well, there's more than one function going on here. Which of these functions can be done better and differently? And, and are these naturally bundled together? Is it right to bundle daycare and food with learning your ABCs? Probably. Seems to work. Uh, is it natural mm -hmm. to bundle together learning differential equations and organic chemistry with learning how to go out and do your own laundry and shop for your own groceries? Maybe. But, you know, dis which part of this picture needs to be disrupted and rethought? And which part of this picture is working just fine and ought to be preserved? That's a great exercise for all of us to go through. So let's stay with that idea around remote work. Obviously, there's Slack and Zoom and all the other technologies. The enterprise companies like Google and Microsoft and even Apple, for that matter, have been big winners in this space. But I personally find the groundhog day effect of seeming every day is the same. You're not what you describe as the person who you're dog sitting for or going to the supermarket you very much miss that, and I think it's as true for work as it is for school or your local community. What do you think stays from the work-from-home phenomena once we get past the pandemic? What changes are taking place, and, and how will the world look after things get back to quote-unquote normal if, if we ever do? We're certainly not going to return to pre-pandemic world, but what does normal look like in the future? Well, one thing that I think changes is the, you know, I look for, I'm looking for silver linings, right? So one thing that I think that changes that's a really good thing is that people are focused a lot more now on deliverable. So when we're just going to have a Zoom meeting and we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z, we're going to get to the end of that Zoom meeting and we're just going to say, all right, well, we're going to come back around, you know, in three days and meet again. And this is exactly what people need to have achieved or, or brought, brought back to the table here. So uh, I guess the, the coworker who just sort of hangs around and chit chats with everybody and tries to look busy and tries to be in meetings and all that doesn't actually contribute that much, but is just trying to make sure he keeps his job. That guy's in trouble because in the age of Zoom meetings and, and all of this and, and working from a distance, you can't hide the fact that you're not delivering the goods um, or it's much harder to hide that. So uh, I like that. You know, I, I guess this kind of came partly from a conversation I had with um, a woman who was a, uh, went from being a, a consultant to an employee. And she said, you know, actually, consultants do really well when they get hired because every time that they have a meeting or a project, they're looking for what's the deliverable at the end. And they always come through with something. And they force people to define what it is they need and what it is they want. Now, that's not the only thing. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that maybe the softer side, the more creative side, um, where just hanging around other people and thinking about things and bouncing ideas off each other, that's really great. Um, 
uh, I guess that maybe the journalistic equivalent of that is where does where do good story ideas come from? Um, they get, you know, ideas get tossed around and people think about things and magic sometimes somehow happens. But that that takes place in any workspace where um, the people make each other more creative uh, by this sort of relaxed interaction. That's the thing that I think we're going to find has been missing in all this work at home stuff. So we need to get we need to get the right mix of that. So I, I think there'll be a lot of offices that'll tell you that you only need to come in a couple of days a week and you can work from home some other days. Makes a lot of sense. Last pandemic related question. So casinos are closed. Sports gambling seems to have uh, all but disappeared, and a lot of people are replacing it with trading. What do you think of the whole Robinhood, TikTok, Reddit community? actively day trading, for lack of a, a better word. Is, is this anything significant within the market, or is this just a small niche of visible but not especially market-moving participants? Well, you know, uh, first I'll, I'll just comment that as, as, an active invest, as active investors, we can't complain that the market gets, gets it wrong from time to time. I mean, if markets were always right, then we would have to go find a way to make an honest living somehow. Uh, so that's <laughs> the, the, for the, you know, the, the Robin Hood crowd. I love those guys when they're buying stocks that I already own. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I don't get to have it both ways. Uh, if people get overexcited about something, there could be a harm. And, you know, the, and you could, well, you could paint all sorts of scenarios, right? What if you, what if the Robin Hood crowd bids your favorite stock right through the ceiling up to a point where you just absolutely can't justify it, and so you do the rational thing and, and sell it, and then it keeps going up? So everyone thinks about, like, oh, this is going to crash, it's going to be terrible and all that. I look at this and think, how many people got forced out of Tesla uh, because that crowd pushed that stock up so fast and, and they'd have been better off if, if the stock didn't look so explosive to the upside and they just made a lot, a lot of money over time. You know, I, I, I think we all look back with, at certain things with regret. And, I mean, I, I look back at uh, Amazon. You know, that's been out of my portfolio for the last 10 years. You know, I'd, I, I'd be even, even happier today if, <laughs> if, I, if I hadn't let that, that stock just run right out, out, from, out of my grasp. Um, so yeah, one, one scenario here is that that crowd, um, takes some of my best stocks out of my hands by making them too expensive. Huh. Interesting. Let's talk about those downturns and those recessions. You've said those are usually seen as bad times for growth stocks, but they also reveal the best opportunities for what stocks are doing well and what's just been coasting explain yep well look um somebody said once that uh um you know calling something a commodity that's not a dirty word you know certain commodities you know uh there were times when you really wanted to own oil uh there were times when you really wanted to own cotton futures um if you think of growth as a commodity then growth is most valuable, like any commodity, it's most valuable when it's scarce. Well, in the midst of a recession, growth is really scarce. And a lot of the mainstream companies uh, that were, you know, where a good year was when they grew uh, 4% and a bad year was when they, you know, didn't grow at all, those companies might be shrinking. And a lot of the other companies that, you know, uh, thought that they could grow 10% every year are struggling to grow 1% or 2%. Um, that's, that's when growth really is the most valuable. And if you can identify growth and see it where other people don't yet appreciate it, you're going to be making your, some of the best investments of your career right during those times. And, um, so yeah, you, you look at 08 and 09, that was probably a really good time to get into Netflix, probably a really good time to get into Apple. The, in, in boom times, Everybody looks like a growth story, and that's, that's wrong. And, uh, yeah, during a bust, it looks like no one's growing. That's also wrong. Huh, quite interesting. 
So I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let me jump to some of my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. And since we've been talking about Netflix, let's discuss what have you been streaming these days? Give us your favorite lockdown entertainment. You know, um, I have to say that like a lot of people who like uh, complex business and drama and true crime stories, um, that Breaking Bad put us all on a really dark path. And for me, that path went from Breaking Bad to Narcos to Ozark to uh, uh, 000 to Gamora. Uh, and so currently I'm streaming Gamora, which has got me thinking that I can almost speak Italian. And and um, it's just very dark. And so I need to break out of that rut because, you know, um, that, that's, that's, that's not a good place to be. So the other great thing that I saw the other day was a, a biography on Ulysses S. Grant. And it was uh, a, a wonderful look. When most people look at that period in U.S. history, they focus on Lincoln. Um, Grant was a wonderful strategist. Uh, and, um, it was a great example too of, of an individual who wasn't really a big success in life until he found his role. And when he found his role, he became a, uh, uh, a big success. And that was, that was wonderful. And I'm a big fan of the planet money, uh, uh, podcast over, uh, over on NPR. Um, uh, but of course I, I did listen to, uh, odd lot. Uh, the other day on their their story on TSMC, and I thought that was well done. Taiwan Sammy. and um, yeah, and and I, I and I love. Uh, there's one called Cautionary Tales that talks about disasters and how they happen. Um, and then finally, Hardcore History is a kind of a niche, uh, sort of a military history uh, um, game, which is it's great to you know to to get your your strategic gears turning. Huh. Quite interesting. Tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, I, I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't work at, uh, you know, at, at, at the elbow of Da Vinci or, or Michelangelo or anything like that. But I did read a lot um, from, uh, uh, specifically in investing, from Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett. Um, you know, Peter Lynch, when he wrote One Up on Wall Street, kind of gave people permission to uh, uh, realize that they have an edge you're an expert at something. You just need to figure out what it is. Uh, and so as an engineer who was looking at tech stocks and wondering about the efficient market hypothesis, that was a great, uh, uh, a great way of, uh, of framing things. That was very helpful. And, um, I, I, I just love the home fund wisdom of Buffett. He's great at actually being a bit of a disruptive radical and disguising it as being, uh, a very conventional kind of homespun, avuncular guy. Um, but both of those people gave really well-reasoned explanations for why it was that the emperor has no clothes. And that's that's one of those great lessons in life that they don't tell you when you're a kid growing up, is that the adults are kind of making a lot of this up as they go. Um, <laughs> and it's not quite such an orderly place as you're led to believe. To say the very least. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us uh, some of your favorite books and, and what you might be reading right now. A couple of uh, books that I really enjoyed early on had to do with individuals overcoming adversity. So The Count of Monte Cristo and uh, The Old Man and the Sea. Uh, the Old Man and the Sea is still kind of my favorite and uh, made me enough of a Hemingway fan that I, I uh, later on I read several of the other books and the one that stuck with me was For Whom the Bell Tolls, set in the Spanish Civil War, and had a great lesson that there are times when you need to be decisive and you're going to regret doing the thing you know you need to do. I like reading strategy books. So, you know, Michael Porter's competitive strategy is a classic. You know, it, 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 it provides a great framework for a lot of your competitive uh, thinking. But if you've already read that, I recommend The Art of War, kind of a classic. Um, and uh, on the economic side, uh, I think uh, a, a great book for me was um, uh, Free to Choose by Milton Friedman. But uh, I guess close runner-up behind that is um, Freakonomics, which is just a wonderful way of, of uh, uh, just being, being creative and how you frame the question is really, really important, and I got a lot out of that. Now, the next book 
I, I have to tell you, one of the silver linings from the pandemic was um, getting in the healthy habit of going for long walks and listening to books on tape. Um, so I've listened to the great Gatsby now, finally, and uh, uh, enjoyed that a lot. But when I was a senior year in college, I got into an argument with a guy uh, who was a sociology major and, and, you know, sciences versus humanities. And I, I made the case that, um, you know, really, you can, you, if you're going to learn the sciences, you have to do it while you're at university. And I, I think the way I won the, won the argument, at least in my version, I won the argument, uh, was that I said, I can always go read Moby Dick. Good luck five years from now getting your head around quantum <laughs> physics. Uh, and so, you know, I never went back and read Moby Dick. So the next book I'm reading will be, a, you know, going out for a walk, a long walk with a, uh, a podcast, and, and uh, Moby Dick is up next. That's interesting. To be fair to the sociologist, I uh, recently took a course on astrophysics online. It's not the same as having those exams coming up each quarter, but you mm-hmm. do get ex- broad exposure to an area you uh, you might be interested in. Not the same as the class, but, but certainly uh, intriguing. And I had the same experience with that you did with Old Man in the Sea. I started reading it on a, on a flight to Florida, and by the time we landed, I was done, and it was just an absolutely, you know, you're, it's one of those books you're sad when it's over, and you immediately want to reread. Yeah, yeah. And, and you really want to meet the great DiMaggio. <laughs> that, was, that was the great, but the hero of the story has his own hero, and this great DiMaggio that he hears about on radio. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in either technology or investment management? Well, I think I would give the same basic advice no matter what your career interest is, and that is so much of life, whether it's you know, it is you know your career and your and what business you're going to be in, it's not really about money. Money is a construct that any economics professor will tell you it's only there to facilitate ever more complex bartering. And you're, you're always bartering what it is you can do for somebody and what it is they can do for you. And you're making all of these trades. Uh, and, and so before you start sitting down and figuring out how to barter, you need to understand what it is that you have to offer other people. You need to get to know yourself and figure out what it is that you can offer others. And if it's not enough, then you need to cultivate that. You need to, to work on what can you become. Um, and uh, once you figure that out, then you can uh, then you can make your way in life, I think, a lot, a lot more effectively. Um, and I, um, but it's not about finding a, a job that you can get that pays well. That's only one component, right? I mean, the, the perfect job is one where uh, or the perfect career is one where you you enjoy it, um, and uh, so even when it's not payday, you still enjoy going to work. You're good at it, and other people value it. If you can if you can get those three things to line up for you, um, it's going to click. But you can't do that unless you really know yourself. I think that's pretty good advice. And our final question: What do you know about the world of investing in technology today? that you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started? <laughs> uh, I guess what I would say is that the world is a much bigger mess than you realize. Uh, it really is chaos out there. And there's a lot of things that are far from perfect. And that's actually a good thing because it means that you can go out there and you can find ways to improve it. Uh, and I think the, the example that everyone can relate is that um, you, generations of people complained that they couldn't get a cab, and then somebody created a ride-hailing service where you could uh, and got rich doing it. So, yes, it is, it is a big mess out there, and we can't complain about it. Our job is to, is to say to ourselves that the conventional wisdom is usually wrong about something, maybe more than one thing. Our job is to figure out what the prevailing wisdom is wrong about and then act on that. Quite intriguing. Kevin, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Kevin Landis of First Hand Funds. 
He is the CIO of First Hand Capital Management and President and Chairman of First Hand Funds. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the other 400 or so we've done over the past seven, almost eight years. God, that's pretty insane. Um, You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each and every week. Reggie Bazil is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.